0: My name's Nicole Aberde, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Books 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 Sydney Law School podcast series in which I'll be interviewing a wide range of Sydney Law School academics about their latest books and work. We'll be covering many different fields including criminal law, international humanitarian law, competition law and constitutional law. I hope that you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I have enjoyed having them. Thank you for listening. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode seven of the Sydney University Law School Books, Books, Books podcast. Today I'll be speaking to Professor Gary Simpson, Professor of Public International Law at LSE and a visiting professor at the Sydney University Law School. We'll be discussing his latest book, The Sentimental Life of International Law, Literature, Language and Longing in World Pop Politics, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Let me start by telling you a little bit about Gary. He was appointed to the Chair in Public International Law at LSE in 2016. He previously held the Sir Kenneth Bailey Chair of Law at Melbourne Law School, has also taught at ANU, NYU and Harvard. He's the author of Great Powers and Outlaw States and Law, War and Crime, War, Crimes, Trials and the Reinvention of International Law. He's the editor of The Nature of International Law and The Law of War Crimes, and co-editor of a number of books, including The Hidden Histories of War Crimes Trials and Who's Afraid of International Law. He's also the author, of course, of countless articles and book chapters. Gary is currently co-directing a project on the Cold War and writing a meditation on nuclearism entitled The Atomics, Life, Love and Death at the End of the World. Gary, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Nicole.
0: So your aim in this book, you say, is to speak, not describe international law. And you describe it as a clandestine and barbarian international law. Could you start by talking a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I suppose my principal motivation, or at least one of my motivations for writing the book was to try and write a book that had never been written before in international law and in a style that hadn't been written before. So it's, if you like, a self-consciously literary artefact, and that includes the cover, which doesn't have a sort of familiar international law look to it. So everything from the cover to the acknowledgements, to the way it was written, to the arrangement of the chapters, to the chapter headings, everything was meant to kind of look unlikely and unfamiliar to the average international lawyer so the, the, that was the aesthetic uh, project if you like um, but there, there was some sort of deeper political project too which we can get into one aspect of which was to get people to think differently about what I regard as an extremely powerful language in global politics
0: you said that you wanted to consider how we might be disabled by the governing idioms of international lawyering and then re-enabled by speaking different sorts of international law or by speaking international law in different sorts of ways. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a common image of international law is that it's fundamentally um, virtuous and good-hearted, but somewhat weak and marginal. So that if people listen to international lawyers more often, the world would would look better. Um, But I've never really accepted that view of international law. I I take the position that it's, in fact, extraordinarily powerful. It's It's a way of thinking and speaking. It's a language which helps us organize our thoughts about the global political and economic order. So that when you hear even ordinary people, politicians as well, speaking about global politics, they tend to speak in a and what really, from a distance, looks like a strangely legalistic language. I mean, we see that in relation to Ukraine. So, you know, given the power of international law and given the state of the world, I wanted to think about whether perhaps international law was doing some damage. That this legalistic way of thinking wasn't always the best approach to international, to to global crises, or that there might be a better way to speak this language. So, I wanted to, I wanted to renew it and offer it some new what I call maybe magical, eccentric resources.
0: What do you mean when you talk about a sentimental life of international law?
1: Well, it was prompted by a number of different um, thoughts. Uh, I mean, I guess the title grew out of an encounter I had at the end of a conference when Someone asked me what the most important thing about the Nuremberg war crimes trials was, and I quoted Rebecca West, the uh, journalist and writer, who said that the most significant thing she saw at Nuremberg was a was a small child, a girl in her a teenage girl, um, growing cyclamens in a, in a, in a makeshift greenhouse outside the courtroom. And I loved that image and I, I used it as a, as a way of answering a question, uh, at the end of a conference about, Ten years ago, and somebody in the room said, "You know, that's all very well, but it's a very sentimental view of the world." And and I wondered what what it would mean to speak in this sort of sentimental way. And I, I thought there was a sort of hard edge to it. I think I think Rebecca West was saying, "Beware of the of the grand trial, the great internationalist moments. Think about the small things that are happening in a country, the way in which." Uh individuals people will reconstruct society after war, and that might include growing cyclamans in a in a greenhouse so it was it was sentimental and maybe a bit ironic but but it also really moved me that image, and it felt to me to be fundamental and politically important as well as sentimental, so that was at least one aspect of it. Um, you know the other was just to write a, an account of international law that, as I say was 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 literary, but I wanted it to be more than literary. I wanted it to talk about the sort of effect and affect of international law, what it does in the world as as a language, the sentiments, if you like, that it provokes and invokes in its in its in its usages in its architecture and in its institutions.
0: I want to come back to something you said. A little bit earlier about the way that people or many people perceive international law as, I suppose, want a better expression, lacking in teeth or lacking in um, mm. gravitas. But you said that you disagreed with that and that you think it is, in fact, very powerful. Can you just explain why that is?
1: Well, I think when we talk about law in general, we there, there's a tendency in the sort of popular imagination to think of law as a sort of enforced, a regularly enforced and enforceable set of rules. So there's a there's a lot of focus on, you know, the police uh, or the army or jails. That, those those are the ideas that tend to circulate when people talk about law. But in fact, I mean, as we know, most law isn't enforced. It's sort of imbibed by the community. Um, compliance doesn't come about because there are police roaming the streets. It comes about because of something else. And part of that something else is is, is related to legitimacy and language. And that's even more true of international law. So, I mean, nobody could pretend that there is a police force. We may not even want a police force at the international level. I mean, who would be in it? Who would run it? Um, Who would authorize it to act? So instead, what we have is this sort of diplomatic arco, this language, um, this sort of dialect, if you like, and what 's striking uh, or what has been striking in the last hundred years and in particular in the last you know twenty five to thirty years, maybe since the Iraq war and before it 's just how ubiquitous and pervasive this language has become as a way of speaking about diplomacy, so that when we hear say you know successive British prime ministers recently talk about the Ukraine war, they have spoken in a very, very and relatively refined um, jurisprudential language. They've talked about Ukraine's rights. They've talked about punishing Russia. They've talked about the rights to territorial integrity and political independence that Ukraine has. They've talked about putting uh, Vladimir Putin on trial. So these are all highly legalistic devices. And I mean, this strikes me as as significant and important. but, But the other thing I want to say about it is that it's relatively new that People wouldn't have spoken about war in this way between 1914 and 1918. For example, they spoke, they spoke in a you know more purely poetic, um, uh, poetic language. I mean, when we think about the Great War and opposition to the Great War in particular, we tend to think about people like Siegfried Sassoon Wilfred Owen. Um, so in a way, we've replaced poetry with law when it comes to speaking about war, and this seems to me to be very significant, and it involves gains. It's, you know, rights are important. The Ukrainian right to sovereignty is vitally important, but it also involves losses. Like any legal language, it leaves out a lot. Um, it can be very arid. It's not the appropriate way to speak about human relations at every turn. We know that from divorce and family law, for example.
0: We're going to come to, to talk about some of those concepts, the idea of that aridness, for example. Just one more introductory question. Um in 2022, the Humanity Journal held a symposium on your book, which must have been fascinated, fascinating, mm. and there were a number of papers delivered by people from different disciplines. In a response that you delivered to those papers, you described the book as being a 200-page description of your own angst. What did you mean by that?
1: Um. Well, it wasn't entirely facetious. Uh, I mean, I, I really did want to, well, part, part of the project of the book was to describe um, my life. I mean, the, the, the subtitle of the of the, essay, the title of the essay I wrote in response was My Life as a Russian Novel. But but really, what I wanted to des- to describe was my life as an international lawyer over the last 30 years. In other words, the experience of of international law. And this was not some sort of fancy, highfalutin thing. Quite the contrary. I wanted to describe the kind of material, everyday conditions of practising and teaching um, international law, what it felt like from the inside, the effect it had on me and on the people around me and so on. So it was, in a way, it was a kind of anthropology or ethnography of international law. It was describing what it feels like from the inside as a particular practice. You know, a really important aspect of any way of being in the world. You know, what does it feel like to be a surgeon? What do surgeons do? It seems to reveal more than, say, a medical textbook. Medical textbooks are vitally important, don't get me wrong. But um, like legal textbooks, there are a lot of them. And perhaps we don't have quite as many descriptions of what it might mean uh, to perform surgery or indeed perform International law. So it was that aspect that I wanted to get at. Uh, it has an obviously it has a strongly autobiographical aspect, and international lawyers, as I said in one of the chapters, have tended to shy away from that because we want to present ourselves as objective, technocratic, impartial figures with no interior life at all. So I wanted to disrupt that fantasy of of international law and international lawyering. We are going to look at.
0: Or try to get through three of the substantive chapters. There are seven substantive chapters in the book. I'd like to deal with all of them, but won't be able to. So we're going to start with one which follows on from what you've just said. Chapter two, The Sentimental Lives of International Lawyers. And in that chapter, you address the question I think you've just touched upon, which is: what is an international lawyer? What is it to be an international law, an international lawyer? And you answer that in three points. You talk about the absence of life, you talk about the autobiographical moment, and then you talk about the sentimental lives of international lawyers. Could you talk a little bit about, about those things?
1: Yeah, I think we've been committed for a long time to screening out our back the background conditions of our lives. So we imagine ourselves as Sort of lawyers and nothing more. I mean, that's not universally true, but generally speaking, to establish oneself in the world as a lawyer is to present oneself as um, a sort of reasoning, unemotional, um, fair-minded figure in the world. I mean, that's those are those are the great virtues of the legal legal system. One might say. Um, But inevitably, our emotional commitments also intrude in our lawyering and our international lawyering. And I want to both get us to think more straightforwardly about those commitments and and also to unravel them a bit. And so one of the ways I do it is to describe how international lawyers approach the question of acknowledgments. Yes. in their books where you do get a flavour of the sort of internal life of, um, of, a, of an international lawyer or any writer. And I think, as I said in the book, a lot of us are very interested in acknowledgement. So the first things we read, sometimes it's the only thing people read in a book. What we want to know about the person is you know, who are their friends? How do they organise their family lives? You know, do they have a dog? How do they express love to other human beings around them? These all seem to me to be absolutely vital questions, and they establish the writer as a human being in the minds of the readers. So acknowledgements, to me, do a lot more work than we think they do. They're not just acknowledging. They're sort of creating a a persona, if you like, even in an unselfconscious, unwitting way. they, 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 They perform that task. So that was something I wanted to I wanted to do. I, I also sort of pointed out, though, that international law has taken a biographical turn over the last 20 years. I mean, there have been sort of biographies of international lawyers, for example.
0: I think that's a really interesting point that you make, that people are starting to take an interest in the relationship between the lives of the international lawyers and the law that they have been involved in creating.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and the surprising thing is that before um, Philippe's book and before um, Marty Koskinelli's book describing the sort of men of the late 19th century and the way they created European international law, before those books, um, international lawyers hadn't taken much of an interest in the sort of lived lives of their predecessors. Um, in in a more classical tradition, a sort of older history, going back to the 16th, 17th century, there was much more of that. You know, we all know that we all know what happened to Grotius as he hid in a chest and went down the river. We know about what some of the sort of great figures of the classical tradition were and what they did, but but mostly we lost that tendency um, in the 19th and 20th century until recently. And, and Philippe's book was a was a big moment describing the way in which these two international lawyers of the interwar period and the Nuremberg period, Lemkin and Lauterpacht, the, the way in which they lived their lives, the lives that they had experienced in Lemberg, Lviv, in Ukraine, um, the way in which the Holocaust had shaped those lives, but also their education in in what's now present-day Ukraine was then, then Poland. So that was an important moment. And I wanted to speak to that moment as well and acknowledge it. Um but I also wanted to describe what contemporary international lawyers do in an everyday manner, um, not so much as a kind of history, but just as a way of capturing the modern scene. So I have a lengthy footnote in which I describe myself going to the UN and being the sort of person. People really like that footnote, and someone asked me at a book launch recently to read it out.
0: So yeah, I love the way you make the point there that – back then, and that's a time when I was a young international lawyer as well, the holy grail was to work at the UN. Like, to work at the UN was just everyone's ultimate aspiration.
1: Yeah, that's right, and it was mine too. And to speak at the UN was my aspiration, and uh, at at the time that was the case. I I went there and... it was it was a bit of an anticlimax, though I remained, you know, fairly excited about it. I wanted to capture that idea of of excitement and anticlimax, which seems to me to be at the heart of international legal projects. Anyway, we we, we invest a huge amount in this field, but there is this interminable sense of disappointment. It just doesn't quite happen. You can see it today. To use a very obvious example, in the in thinking about the Ukraine war, people get very excited about the prospect of. Trying Vladimir Putin, they're excited about international law and war crimes trials. And then they discover that it can't be done. And there's this huge sense of disappointment and anti climax. So, in a kind of autobiographical move, I describe that experience, the experience of illusion followed by disillusion. And, And, you know, one more thing I'd say about the book is that it describes my of trajectory from an il- illusioned um, law student um, thinking uto- in a utopian fashion about the world through international law to a sense that, oh, this is just a sort of legal order like any other with all its its disappointments and its its its, its technicalities and so on, followed by, and, and, and much of critical scholarship, I think, has stopped there. But I wanted to follow that with a kind of re-illusioning. I wanted to offer what I call a sort of sense of longing. I wanted to recapture the sense of longing people have as young international lawyers. Yeah, exactly. The idea of a redemption. So I I wanted to come on as a kind of chastened utopian. And and that's what I tried tried to train my students to become. Not to give away their utopianism, uh, not to become cynics. Um not to remain too idealistic, but but to, to, to hold on to the hope that they invested on in the system, but just to leave in it with a little bit of you know, skepticism, reality, whatever it is, and to produce these figures, which, you know, as I as I say, I call you know, I call sort of chasing, you know, disappointed utopians, or 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 reallusions, to international lawyers. Uh, there's, there's many ways to describe them.
0: Let's talk about this notion of sentimentality. Um, you make the point that on the one hand, we need a language of sentimentality. On the other hand, we also need to avoid mawkishness and sentimentality. Or, well, we need to avoid the two. Um, and you describe how international law has worked against what you call this this dual problem of, on the one hand, an impersonal sort of dryness. But the way that international law has in some sense counted that is by indulging in what you describe as an excess of sentiment. What Mm. are some of the problems that you write about that have arisen from that excess of sentiment?
1: Yeah, that's very nicely put. Uh, So that's exactly it. Um, I think every legal order um, thinks of itself as essentially um, technical at some level. And so one of the problems that, that that we encounter is the sense that the material is somehow too dry. And in international law, this seems doubly true. I mean, it may be true of criminal law as well. But the description of particular crimes and the discussion of evidentiary standards strikes some people as being um, de- somehow sort of dehumanizing or arid in some way. And when it comes to you know international crimes, or or, or when it comes to war, um, that seems doubly true. That somehow old style traditional international legal language didn't seem to cut the mustard when it came to the sorts of things that were happening on the ground in war. So international law took what I call a, a sort of sentimental turn at the I'd say it's the beginning of the twentieth century when people began to talk about war in what we might call a sentimental legal language. They they began to talk about um, the idea of humanity as the basis for international law or what the Nuremberg Tribunal called the civilization of mankind, a really sort of moral sentiment at at the basis of this whole legal field. Or they developed uh, the language and principles of, of, of human rights, which, again, were an attempt to sort of capture the, the lived trauma of individuals on the ground, um, a, a sentimental move. And the whole idea of thinking about international law in terms of individuals, individual rights, human rights, and individual responsibilities and liabilities, war crimes – also struck me as, as sentimental in the way that one might think of a sort of sentimental novel as, as being a novel which is largely about sort of individuals um, rather than events or circumstances. Um, so international law did that. It moved from states to flesh and blood human beings, and it did it in 1945 at the Nuremberg War Crimes trials, one might say. So that, that's one sentimental turn it, it, it too. One minute we were talking about You know, Germany and France in a very technical manner in the 19th century. The next minute we were talking about Tojo and Goering and we were hanging people. You know, we made a very, very individualistic turn, if you like.
0: I like the point also that you make about um, the danger of moral simplicity. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, what I was worried about there was the sense that we'd ended up in a world in which there were sort of perpetrators and victims or villains and innocents that maybe um, prior to the 20th century, international law took a more um, nuanced um, or perhaps um perhaps a skeptical view of the world that the world was full of people with sort of people and states with mixed motives it was hard to really assign responsibility for war war was just a kind of function of international society a function of the state of nature in which states found themselves and it was a kind of inevitability and um we move from that to thinking about war in terms of criminal responsibility so that war was generally thought of instead in the 20th century as a crime of aggression perpetrated by a villainous tyrannical state against an against an innocent party And this is an idea that's really taken hold um, of diplomatic thinking. And I think we've got to recognize just how unfamiliar that would be to a 19th century European international lawyer who wouldn't have thought in those terms about the, I don't know, about the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s. No one was casting one side as a a villain, far less a criminal, and the other side as an, an innocent victim. Instead, war was just what happened. It was a kind of naturally occurring Phenomenon, but in the 20th century, we turned away from that, and we created a world in which there were there were there were prosecutors and criminals, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 or, or, or 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 angels and devils. And I think we're I think international criminal law and the law of war crimes has really formed or participated in that idea. And it's extraordinarily powerful and tenacious. It's how we understand the Ukraine war. And I'm not saying we shouldn't understand the Ukraine war in those terms. I'm just, su- I'm just suggesting that there are other ways into it and that international law provides the resources to think of it in different ways. But this, this this idea has really taken hold. It's become a very dominant way of thinking about the world.
0: And you make the point in this moral simplicity idea that those that see themselves as the prosecutors were often themselves the, uh, guilty of atrocities or, um, you know, very very poor conduct themselves you talk about the um oh, i think about you, you there's a great discussion where you talk about the post-war discussion and uh, of involving france and the us and the uk and how mm. what's the word sort of self-satisfied they were seeing themselves as the as the, mm, the yeah. honorable countries and you you refer back to some of the atrocities that they've been involved in in the past
1: yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there are real dangers. So, you know, what I I believe sort of happened at the beginning of the 20th century, which is so important, is that a group of states after the First World War ceased to think of themselves as sort of ordinary states, or or, or, or Nietzsche called them cold-hearted monsters. So the idea in the 19th century was that all states were sort of cold-hearted monsters. They were colonizers, they were acquisitive, they were warlike. And you know, the best international law could do was sort of vaguely humanise war at the margins through, you know, the laws of war and so on. But um, after the First World War, something happened and France and the United Kingdom, and to a lesser extent, the United States began to think of themselves not as states that had defeated another state or other states in a war, but as representatives of, of humanity itself uh, or civilization. And that idea has never gone away um these states continue to think of themselves as humanity and and these representatives of humanity then prosecute sort of inhumane states states that have violated the rules of humanity or committed crimes against humanity and the problem with that um is that these states refuse to think of themselves as just old-fashioned political agents capable of making mistakes and now think of themselves as as I said you know angels or avenging angels and it's given international politics a very sort of righteous edge. And as I pointed out, at Nuremberg, these states, in thinking of themselves as humanity and, and as 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 assigning the Nazis and the Japanese to the, the, the status of sort of inhumane outlaws, uh, not inappropriate given the history of the 1930s and 40s, I know. But in doing that, they sort of screened out all the crimes that they might have committed, uh, you know, colonialism in the, in the case of the British and the... French or, you know, what was going on in the southern states of the United States, the remnants of slavery and the absence of civil rights and so on. So all that got screened out. And I think that's, to go back to your point about moral simplicity, that's something that international law sometimes does. It sort of points to a perpetrator who's so evil that it renders everyone else's evil somehow no longer evil.
0: Yes, I, I mean, you talk quite a bit also about this concept of historical amnesia and oblivion. I yeah,
1: I mean, if I could just give a really concrete example of that, when the, the French prosecuted Klaus Barbie, the um, you know Nazi war criminal who was responsible for the uh, murder of Jewish children in Lyon and the torture of Jean Moulin, the uh, French resistance leader, when... When he was being prosecuted before the French courts, his um, defence lawyer turned the tables on the prosecutors and said, look, why don't you prosecute the French authorities for acts of torture in Algeria? Why aren't you speaking about French collaboration at Vichy with the, with the Nazi regime? And a French minister stood on the steps of the courtroom and said, France will be acquitted before this court, as if it was France that was on trial and not Barbie. So. Barbie's defense laws have turned the tables on humanity in a way that I found um you know very provocative and mm. open-ended so I think that's a, that's a good example of the of the way in which international law works in these situations
0: Gary I like the way you refer to your own example as you say this is, and as others have said this is a deeply personal account of international law and one of one of the the points that you come to after talking about the risks of an excess of sentimentality is how, on the other hand, you can't be too dry and impersonal when you're speaking about the sort of atroc- mm. atrocities involved with war crimes. Tell us about your own, you know, and you write about it in the book, your own personal dilemma when you come to teach a class on war crimes.
1: Yeah, I've, I've you know, I've anguished about this over the years, um, partly because um, a student came to me about 10 years ago and said, you know, it's funny, you never describe any actual war crimes or crimes against humanity in a class that's called the law of war crimes. We never hear about any of these war crimes during the class. And And I said, that's right. I feel quite uncomfortable um, describing the these crimes against humanity and war crimes, I've always been very conscious of that. I remember reading somewhere that outside the Holocaust Museum in Washington, when it first opened, people were all each given the name and card of a Jewish victim of the Holocaust to walk through the, the museum with, and it's a beautiful idea, uh, except outside the um. Outside the museum, people found these cards just sort of lying on the pavement. uh, And it felt like, you know, it's melodramatic to say they were being killed twice, but there was that aspect, um, that aspect to it. So I was very conscious of trying to show victims as much respect as possible, not just trying to use them for my teaching purposes, and especially not trying to use them in what I took to be a slightly, you know, a slightly dramatic, voyeuristic way, which I had seen done. In the field, I think there's something very I call it sort of syrupy invocations of of evil and trauma and massacre. I've seen it quite a bit in the field, and I really, really don't like it. I don't like it in the culture generally. You know, you switch on the TV, and there's something about the Nazis on almost all the time if there are hundred channels on TV. I think there's a there's a sort of nasty underside to this obsession, and I wanted to very much avoid that. On the other hand, I had to capture the pain of these. Uh, these atrocities, these traumas suffered by people. So I looked for sort of indirect ways to to do that. Um, and usually each year I, I only find one example that I can use. Last year it was an example from the. From a visit I took to Nuremberg, I went to the Nuremberg Rally site after speaking at the in 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 courtroom um six hundred where the uh where the Nuremberg trials had taken place. And we're ordinary murder trials now or until very recently took place. But I spoke there, I gave a lecture, and the next day I went to with my daughter who's Jewish to the um to the Nuremberg Rally site. And um there were some photographs. So one of the photographs was taken in a in a Baltic city in Germany in the nineteen, mid-1930s, and it was this Absolutely beautiful couple. He was a German, uh, German. She was a German Jewish person, and this is rather important. And they were both holding signs up, or he was holding a sign up saying, "I have betrayed my race." In other words, betrayed my race by marrying this woman. He's been forced to do it. They both looked traumatized. They weren't about to be killed, but it seemed to me to be a photographic representation of the sort of that very important moment in the nineteen thirties when people are humiliated there's there's there are no camps at least not the sorts of camps we are familiar with now there's no extermination but there's a sort of humiliation that seems to me to prefigure all that and this image was extraordinarily powerful and I, I used it in class and I said this is what, where it begins this is what we need to keep an eye on and and indeed international criminal law itself has tried to keep an eye on this to be fair to the discipline you know that Persecution, for example, is one of the great crimes of international criminal law, and it can involve acts like this it's not all about sort of it's not all about killing or the sorts of torture human rights abuses that we're familiar with. Things usually go wrong at a much earlier point than that, and we have to be attentive to that and I try and capture that through my very sort of quietly sentimental rendering. Of of these these two individuals in particular, I wanted to sort of bring them to life rather than leave them lying outside the Holocaust Museum in Washington.
0: You write in the book about the influence of writers, literary writers, on international lawyers, and you make the point that Shakespeare is one of the favourites of international lawyers. As as you were talking, all I could think about was "Man's Inhumanity to Man," right? Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah exactly. I mean there's been a, there's been a sort of theme in the field of people writing shakespearean studies of of the laws of war and and parsing literary texts for examples of law or international law from you know shakespeare through to dostoevsky and beyond and um, that's been a very productive vein actually
0: Gary, you conclude this chapter by trying to describe an ideal kind of a sentimentality. I love some of the descriptions you give. You say, Sent- what what you recommend, what we should aspire to, is a sentimentality that is detached but involved, an in international law that resists tears but stays close to them. I think that was my favourite. What does that look like, that sort of sentimentality that that treads the line, that walks the line? <laughs>
1: It's so difficult to describe that my, my sort of abstract descriptions are hard to put into practice. I and mean, people have said this when I have presented the book. They say, do you want us just to be like you? What they well, mean? no, they think that I'm presenting this image of a person who's sort of exquisitely attuned to the various problems of sentimentality. And sort of, somebody called it the view from Hampstead, a kind of liberal man. And um, that's been a criticism of the book, which I totally take on board. So somebody said, you know, are, are we just supposed to have that kind of cultured idea of the world? Is that what you're prescribing? And there's, there is that danger in talking in these sort of abstract literary flourishes. So I do give some examples of what this sort of sentimental life might be, and and you know, one of them is the uh, one of them is the Rebecca Rebecca West example. And later on I talk about um, uh, 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 a series of letters that um, Khrushchev sent to Castro after the, cold, after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, which also seemed to me to be a very productive, what I call pastoral international law.
0: Let's have a look now at Chapter 4 called Bluebeard on Trial, The Experience of Bethos. So here you examine the field of international criminal law through the literary device of of bathos. And by international criminal law, you're talking specifically about the prosecution of those responsible for grave acts of political violence for war crimes. Just remind us, for those that aren't familiar with the term or have forgotten it, what bathos is.
1: Well, bathos is a kind of disappointment or anti-climax, a sort of falling off in in literary language mainly so it's the experience we have when we see say an example i give in the book is a is a t-shirt that has you know london new york followed by the person's hometown is that sort of falling off you know new york london thurzo in my case you know people see the humor in that they 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 understand that sort of the, the the small hometown doesn't belong in that company. And um, in literary thinking, it's often used to describe our experience or our encounter with the sublime. So we encounter the sublime and then we try and describe it. And it's inevitably disappointing. It's, it's, it's you know, rather like the romantic scenes or sex scenes in novels. You know, you'd think that that sublime would be grist, the grist to the mill of of authors, but it just doesn't work so often. I mean, there's this sort of bad sex prize because it's so difficult to do, and and the, and the experience there is generally bathos. How can you write about this stuff in that way? It's just so banal and mundane. And I think something similar happened with um, as I it was with with international criminal criminal law as well, which we can we can get onto.
0: So the issue that you really explore in this chapter is what is wrong with the prosecution of war criminals, with war crimes trials, and what might be some alternatives. Your argument is basically, as you uh, foreshadowed in the discussion of BATHOS, that international criminal law is an anti-climatic response to atrocity. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think the first thing to point out is that um, many people experience uh, disappointment when they encounter international criminal law or the law of war crimes close up. So this is not a sort of figment of my imagination or a, a sort of critical gesture arising out of no nothing or nowhere. So victims tend to experience uh, a sense of disappointment. 15 years for that, you know, I, I lost my whole family and this person gets fifteen years. Or, you know, I lost my whole tribe or nation, uh, and it turns out this person isn't even convicted of a crime of genocide because they didn't have intent to destroy and whole other It all gets very legalistic. So there's that sort of disappointment. There's a disappointment with the procedure. Maybe there's a disappointment with the length of the trial. The fact that it gets bogged down in technicalities. There's, there's all of that. And then there's the sense that even in a successful trial um, where the judges are are highly attuned to that sort of thing, um, that somehow the um, performance of law or legal language or the end point of the trial, conviction, and imprisonment just somehow don't match the experience of war or trauma. There are, there's not enough there. There's somehow there's a surplus of sentiment or emotion that, that just can't be discharged through international criminal trials. So I think that's an experience that that many victims have, and it's an experience that Hannah Arendt um, had when she went to Jerusalem to cover the Eichmann trial. So she went there as a the German Jewish American intellectual and um, expecting to be confronted by you know evil incarnate. There was Eichmann, who'd be in charge of the the Final Solution. He was he was the head of the Gestapo unit responsible for transporting you know jewish men women and children to the camps continuing to do it even after he'd been told not to by himmler in budapest in 1945 he had a remarkably affectless and unthinking character so she thought she'd encounter um evil but evil turned out to be for her uh, and she uses the famous word banal it's just this i couldn't seem ordinary letter Cohen wrote a verse about this, you know, what did you expect? Uh, talons. Here's a man, 10 fingers, 10 toes. What did you expect? Talons. So it's another human being. And I think the Eichmann trial sort of revealed to um, revealed something very, very sinister about humanity for our for end. So if Nuremberg had been about extraordinary evil, Hitler, Gurring, people like that, then Eichmann was about a very ordinary person, somebody very unexceptional, a bureaucrat, uh, somebody who could have easily worked, as I often say for Deloitte, but turned out to work for the Gestapo and, and 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 used the same sort of bureaucratic techniques, except he was moving people to their deaths on on, on trains heading for Birkenau and, and, and Auschwitz. So that encounter with evil for Arendt was a huge disappointment. She described it in those terms at the end of the trial, but her response to it is not disappointing. It's it's deeply human, and it's a major contribution to jurisprudence and remains one of the most important works on uh, Nuremberg and on Eichmann and on war crimes, because I think what she ends up with is a kind of chastened um, utopianism. It's not that she doesn't believe in the trial, it's just that she she has a certain degree of disillusionment about the prospects of trial. She knows that Eichmann has to die, but she's worried that somehow execution won't be enough, um, that hanging will be inadequate, as it were, or execution will be inadequate. And I think this sense of inadequacy runs through international criminal law. I don't blame anyone for this, by the way. I don't think it's the responsibility of those who are trying to construct the system, some of whom are, you know, brave, intelligent human beings. I just think it's so, sometimes so built into
0: it. It's not something that people talk about very often, is it? That was what really struck me about this chapter, that it's such a reflex instinct to call for vengeance, to call for prosecution. Not many people deep dive in the way that you have to explore whether that really is adequate or appropriate. Tell us about the concept of unprecedented, which you write about.
1: Well, but before I do that, I'll, I'll say something about the, the the last point you made, which is you know so important. It's a very very uh, unpopular view. It's not so unknown in the academy, uh, yeah. but it's hard to get much purchase for it outside the academy because, understandably, human beings thirst for a kind of legalized vengeance um, so to argue against war crimes trials for Vladimir Putin will seem sort of perverse in that in that atmosphere and it's hard to make the argument. I remember being interviewed on the BBC World Service once about the prospects of trying Putin and I ran through the prospects which are you know remote but not completely impossible uh, it's a bit of a law of un- unintended consequences this whole field. But uh, at the end of it, the woman who was interviewing me saying, are there any questions you wished I'd asked? And I said, well, you didn't ask me whether we should try Putin. And she, we were on Zoom at the time, and she pushed her chair back in amazement at the question. But it's a very traditional question that, you know, should we do this? <laughs> is this the right approach? Um, is this the right legal system to use in this particular case? You know, it's a very, very traditional orthodox question, and yet – it's taken on a highly unorthodox um, idiosyncratic aspect in the in the current system so that's also struck me struck me as strange unprecedented well I, I do I do think that one of the things that international uh, that war crimes trials do is to is to unprecedented in other words remove from the historical frame a lot of other crimes because what happens in trials is that there are descriptions of the current crisis or the current atrocity as the worst thing that has ever happened i mean this this sort of begins in the great war when german atrocities in belgium are described as the most inhumane things that man could ever do to his fellow man um it turned out a lot of this was made up uh but that that it was actually a description of what happened in 19 you know, 90, between 1936 and 1945. And I think part part of the reason it wasn't believed in 1937, 38, 39, when reports of the Holocaust began to circulate in 1940, part of the reason that it was disbelief and skepticism is because people felt that they'd been lied to in the First World War. So there's a sort of interesting thing going on. But one of the effects of trials is to kind of remove from the frame previous atrocities. So in describing the Kaiser's crimes as the worst crimes ever committed, somehow... The crimes of colonialism were completely removed from the frame. After all, between 10 and 15 million Congolese had died as a result of Belgian colonization. And yet, Belgium was being presented as a sort of little Belgium, the ultimate victim in 1914 of German aggression, the worst aggression that had ever been seen by humanity. There's a lot of that highly inflated language in international criminal law. And it has serious dangers because it, it inevitably. Results in a kind of screening out of a previous trauma, and I think we we see that a little bit in the discussions about the Ukraine war. I've been amazed, for example, how little discussion there is about Iraq in two thousand and three, which bears quite heavy similarities in some respects to Ukraine in two thousand and twenty three. But there's a kind of repressed, one might even say, neurotic silence about Iraq. It's positively excluded from the public discourse because I think there's a huge amount of of um, civilizational embarrassment about the fact that the West conducted a war that in some respects was rather similar to Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
0: So one of the points you make at the beginning of the book is that what you want to do is not just to provide a critique of international law, but to look at some as we mentioned earlier, to provide some some hope, some ideas of redemption and I think you do that very nicely in this particular chapter where you talk about the idea of re-precedenting. And this is when having examined, and we, we haven't had the chance to talk about it in detail, but it's a great discussion of the flaws inherent in a system of prosecuting war crimes in the way that we do. You look at two different alternatives, as ways of responding to political atrocity. One of them is non-punitive restitution in the form of Mm. reparations for victims, and the other is anti-monumentalism. Because I was so interested in the second, I'll just ask you briefly about the idea of the non-punitive restitution. This comes largely from the idea of human rights law or partly anyway, um, the concept of financial reparations for victims. What are the problems with that?
1: Well, the problem—the problem is—is—is the problem is, is partly distributional. You know, how on earth do you distribute the proceeds of a sort of reparations finding? And is money an appropriate way to account for or reckon with atrocity in the first place? And how do you—or should you—distinguish between the? If I could put it in these terms, the victims of war and the victims of peace the sort of victims of the system in general you know you you enrich a certain group of individuals who are you know justifiably entitled to some reparation because they're victims but then another group of people who've been victimized in a different way might get left behind so there are there are sort of problems with with this approach but it but it's growing in importance and as you say it's 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 arisen from human rights law which was largely dedicated to this form of reparation, and and human rights lawyers have have complained about the way in which international criminal law has begun to colonise their discipline, that, that human rights law has become about punishment and retribution and ending impunity. But none of these ideas were in circulation during the first 30 or 40 years of the human rights movement. Human rights was about persuasion in those days, you know, prisoners of... Conscience, UN committees, rapporteurs, it was a very, very different system, and it's taken on a much more punitive aspect. Um, it It used to be that Amnesty International was dedicated to keeping people out of prison. Now it wants to put them into prison. Now, obviously, they're different individuals. But, you know, the prisoners of conscience, it was all about getting people out of prison, imprisoned by oppressive regimes. Now it's about putting the members of those oppressive regimes into prison. And that's a real shift in sensibility. Um I'm not suggesting the 2 are remotely equivalent of course but there is a shift there um in 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 attitude and atmosphere um in in human rights but I was very provoked and this may be your, your next question about these sort of anti monuments produced by by German um uh, German artists after the Second World War. And I suppose the question there was, you know, how do you memorialize the experience of the Holocaust? And, and what they decided is that you just couldn't keep building monuments, that, that you couldn't repeat the mistakes of empire and the mistakes of the Nazi regime. There was something about the West, but not just the West. There was something about the monumentalism, the symbolism of of sovereignty that didn't sit well with the remembrance of the victims of the Holocaust. So these German artists built monuments that were designed monuments or suggested monuments that were designed to implode Mm -hmm. or disintegrate, or in one case, a, a monument to Jewish children in a German town was designed to just slowly disappear into the ground over a period of 30, 40 years. And I sort of love that idea of, 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 of remembering through a, a form of erasure, if you like, or forcing people to remember in their own ways. The trouble with official remembrance, like official trials, Is that it removes the need for people to negotiate their own way around the experience of of trauma or memory. So it can have a very sort of limiting effect in some cases. And that's what I worried about. And that's where I took sustenance from these sort of anti monuments.
0: Can you just mention the one that really caught my eye about the Brandenburg Gate?
1: The suggestion that it be uh, be destroyed and left as a pile of rubble. Yeah, this was a very controversial idea that one way to deal with the problem of the German state or the German imperial state was to destroy one of its greatest monuments and just leave the rubble there Um, as a way of decentering the state. Uh, as a way of remembering in a different way, as a way of memorializing in an anti-imperial way. I mean, needless to say, that didn't happen. No, um, but, 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 but you know, the, idea, I mean, is, the is, idea is, yeah, exactly. The idea itself is so stimulating that it's it, it works in its own terms.
0: I mean, I, I kept thinking of the idea of walking the talk. Like it's it's all very well to say that you feel sorry and to build shrines of remembrance, but you know, yeah. So my next question is. This idea of anti-monumentalism, you sort of extrapolate from that and say, maybe that's one of the ways that we, that international law can respond to atrocity. And you give an example of perhaps there being a history of trials that never occurred, for example, the trial of Hitler. Um, or you talk about a type of international criminal law that is neither international criminal or law, i.e. Um, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Could you just talk a bit more about that concept of how this idea of the anti-monumentalism could perhaps be brought into international law, international criminal law, as an alternative to war crimes trials?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways um, these ideas are already are already there. Um, so the history of international law begins really in the 17th century after these horrible religious wars in Europe. And when they end, um, states come together with the Holy Roman Empire and they decide to, as one of the treaties puts it um, back in 1648, to forget the troubles that have taken place. Forget. So there's a demand for, and cast them into oblivion is the term. There's a demand for forgetting and oblivion. I think the idea is that we can't punish everyone. If we do that, we're just going to set off a fresh reign of terror. We have to do something else. We have to engage in uh, amnesia, forgetting, apology, oblivion. And I do wonder if if that wasn't a certain sort of wisdom uh, that we might want to retrieve. Not maybe in every instance. It might not be appropriate for, I don't know, the Nazis. I'm not suggesting that this becomes anything blanket but i just think it might be worth opening ourselves up to those possibilities so you know one obvious possibility is just to to, to do nothing to decide not to put resources into criminalization and retribution instead to try and work out how best to reconstruct a society mm-hmm. um building say you know i don't know 100 child care centers instead of 10 um trial chambers i i I don't know it's a it's um it's a sort of slightly cartoonish way to put it i know but but at least to open ourselves up to the possibility that there are options and built into international law are these possibilities so you know amnesties have been used much more often than trials over the last half century in post-traumat traumatized societies um in international law itself, we have a sort of whole law of immunity which prevents um high-ranking officials from being tried in foreign courts. Now, however frustrating that is, and it means that people like I don't know, Edie Amin or or George Bush or whoever the villain of the day is, it means these people sort of get off scot-free. But there's a there's a broader principle at stake, namely the need to maintain diplomatic relations with our Enemies, even relatively inhumane enemies. And that's why this law of immunity has arisen. So built into international law are these other are these are alternative forms or what, what we might call anti-monumental forms of doing law and politics. And I, you know, wanted just to sort of excavate some of those in the in the book or in that chapter at least.
0: Gary, we haven't got to chapter six, the declaration on friendly relations. We're not going to get there. We need to wind up now, but I wanted to. Finish by asking you a question that you posed yourself at the beginning of the book, and that is whether, or you ask, is international law an apt way to think about and to change the world? And I wondered, having written this book, whether you were any closer to an answer to that question.
1: I mean that's a very that's a very difficult question uh to answer. I mean I certainly believe that it is not the only way to think politically and diplomatically about the world. Um and I think we can learn a lot from other ways of thinking whether they be literary whether they be diplomatic whether they be more obviously political or philosophical or indeed poetic as I said in relation to the first world war and I do worry that some of these other languages have been a bit squeezed out by this move to the juridical language of of, of international law that we now speak law instead of poetry or religion or philosophy or in 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 the case of Ukraine instead of diplomacy itself I think that in relation to the war at the moment, which I'm very sort of agitated about, like so many people, we're in a highly legalistic, punitive phase. There's a sort of uncompromising phase. Um, but that's not the only way to do international law. So when people speak about... I don't know, Israel, Palestine, they don't tend to speak in that way about Palestinian rights. They don't demand that the Palestinians fight and die to the last person for every ounce of whatever Palestinian territorial integrity might be. They take a much more pragmatic attitude. Now, we can like or dislike that attitude. I have nothing to say about that here. The point is just to identify its existence and to say that, it's, it's one of the other languages that is available, and it's a, it's a resource of international law itself, a kind of diplomatic international law, an international law that doesn't see sovereign rights and war crimes trials as the last word on every political issue. And it instead thinks about how we might live in peace with our enemies.
0: Gary, thank you so much for speaking to me.
1: Thank you, Nicole.
0: Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleaberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberdy, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.